0: please turn with me to John, chapter 15. We'll be going through verses 1 through 11. Hudson Taylor, a pioneering missionary to China, was known to keep an exhausting work pace. His commitment and drive with his work took a tremendous toll on his health and in the midst of physical and mental breakdown, he received a letter from a concerned friend, a fellow missionary, John McCarthy. While reading the Gospel of John, God's Word had revealed something to McCarthy in chapter 15 in regarding the joy in abiding in Christ. And he felt that this truth needed to be shared with Taylor. Part of his letter said this, Abiding, not striving or struggling, looking off unto him, trusting him for present power. This is not new, yet tis new to me. Christ literally all seems to be now the power, the only power for service, the only ground for my unchanging joy. As he read this letter, Hudson Taylor recollected, I saw it all. I looked to Jesus, and when I saw, oh, how the joy flowed. In his letter to his sister, he wrote, as to work, mine was never so plentiful, so responsible, or so difficult, but the weight and strain are all gone. The last month or more have been perhaps the happiest of my life, and I long to tell you a little of what the Lord has done for my soul when the agony of soul was at its height. A sentence in a letter from Dear McCarthy was used to remove the scales from my eyes, and the Spirit of God revealed the truth of our oneness with Jesus I had never heard before. McCarthy, who had been much exercised by the same sense of failure, saw the light before I did, wrote, and I quote from memory, but how to get faith strengthened, not by striving after faith, but by resting in the faithful one. So these truths taken from John 15 that impacted these two men in such a divine way were not new to them but were illuminated by the Holy Spirit at such a time and they were able to find rest in Jesus when they were at the end of their own capabilities. And that's my hope this morning that God's word will find a place in our hearts and give you everything you need peace, wisdom, guidance, rest. I'll go ahead and read our passage. It's 15, we're starting in verse one. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit takes away and every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. so have I loved you abide in my love if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love these things I have spoken to you that is my <clears throat> that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full so this passage contains the last of the lord's i am statements recorded in the gospel of john and we think of some of those statements such as i am the bread of life i am the good shepherd I am the way, the truth, and the life, we see that most of them have to do with the entrance into the life that we have in Christ. But this statement's different. It says, I am the true vine. I think it's fitting that it's the last of these statements, since abiding in Christ is the divinely intended everyday experience of the enjoyment of eternal life. It pertains to the Christian life as the Lord would have us live it. So in context, what's happening right now, it's the night before the crucifixion. And Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room in Jerusalem when they have just celebrated the Passover meal. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet and in doing so, given, him a, given them a humble example of the service that were give, given to one another. He has revealed that one of them would betray him as it indicated that the betrayer would be Judas Iscariot. Judas has ignored Jesus' many warnings to him and in having his heart filled with Satan, he is left to go do his evil deed of betrayal. Jesus has used some of these elements of Passover to establish a new memorial meal that we commonly refer to to as the Lord's Supper or communion. And it would be a ritual that would remind them of the sacrifice he was about to make to redeem them from their sin and remember his promise that he would return. Jesus' statements that he was about to go away understandably upset them. They were in shock. They had given up everything to follow him. And now he said he was leaving. So he comforted them with assurance that though he was going away, he was going to his father's house and he would be, be preparing a place for them. And he would return to them and bring them to that place. In the time between those events, Jesus would work on their behalf, interceding with the Father. And the Holy Spirit would come to comfort them and enable them to fulfill the ministry that Jesus had called them to do. The time is short now before Jesus would be arrested. Then tried and crucified the next day, and they were preparing to leave the upper room to proceed to the garden of Gethsemane. And this time Jesus gave his disciples some final encouragement and instructions. So on their way to the garden, Jesus continues with his discourse, and he begins in 15:1 saying, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I think it's important to explain some cultural context to this statement. I think it's of significance. The grapevine became a symbol of personal prosperity and was even employed as a national symbol for Israel. It was a there was an image. It was an image of Jewish national life. Just for example, in Isaiah 5 7 states, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. A grapevine was used as an emblem minted on their coins, and a large gold grapevine was used to decorate the gates of the temple. And now Jesus has just used the fruit of the vine as a symbol for the blood of which he is about to shed for them. And the disciples would have understood all of this, and they would have understood that Jesus' declaration of being the true vine was a claim to the fulfillment of all these symbols. Jesus is the source of life that would bring forth unto God, and God himself was the caretaker of the vine. The purpose of the vine is to produce fruit, and the intent of the caretaker is to help the vine accomplish that goal. Jesus uses this analogy of the relationship of the Father and the Son. The Son desires to please the Father in all things and does the Father's will, and the Father enables the Son to accomplish all things. That has been Jesus' continuing claim throughout the Gospel of John up until now, and Jesus' desire to glorify the Father, and the Father enabled him to preach and teach and perform many miracles for that purpose. And Jesus explains in 15.2 the role of the Father being the caretaker of the vines. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. They would have been very familiar with with this concept since they had lived in an agricultural society in which grapes were a common crop. The art of cultivating grapes started, and grape vines have grown abundantly in Israel for many centuries before this, and because of this, most Jews were familiar with the growing of vines and what was involved in obtaining the best fruit from them. So when Jesus said, my father is the vine dresser, he's painting a description of how the father cares for them personally and knows exactly how to make them fruitful. How thankful we ought to be to enjoy such special care from God, who is our divine vine dresser. Every branch under his care will be able to produce the best fruit this was taken care of when God chose his son, Jesus Christ, to be the vine for us to abide in. According to verse one, Jesus is the true vine, the only genuine choice vine that can produce the kind of fruits that God wants to see in all living branches that are joined to him. God's supreme care as our vine dresser, it also seems that he, God's supreme care as our vine dresser, we see as, he, as what he removes, sorry. In verse 2, he takes dead branches away from the vine. Through the marvelous outworking of God's providence, false teachers and false disciples are eventually separated so that their false teachings and sinful influences will not destroy God's people. And God's removing work is not just limited to the dead branches, it is also applied to the living branches as well. But what he does to the living branches is not just to remove them, but to remove things from them. He cuts away anything that may hinder our growth and productivity, especially those which draw our attention away from him that may be idols if we're not careful. God does this with, with us, right? In Hebrews 12.11, it states, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God wants us to bear fruit in our lives, so he prunes us that we might be more dependent on the vine and produce more fruit instead of extraneous leaves and branches. The Apostle James counseled, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when we meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing.'" And Paul said nearly the same thing in Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's pruning of us through trials and tribulations is not pleasant at the time, but such things force us to be more dependent on him They drive us to a deeper relationship with him, and therefore, into a greater spiritual maturity. We often don't understand why these things are happening at the time they're happening, we don't like them. But we can be sure that our heavenly father loves us and that therefore, even in the difficult things in life, we can be confident that he's doing something good in us and through us for his own glory and for our good. I've seen it where some people think Jesus is referenced in verse two, about the branches being in him means that these are saved people. But as we'll see as we go through the rest of the passage, this isn't the case. Remember that Judas had been a respected member of the disciples, but he is already left to do Satan's work. He was a branch that was in Christ, but who bore no fruit. And a distinction is made regarding those who are abiding in Jesus. We see this in verses 3 through 5 verse 3, we see conditions for abiding. It says, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So we look back in John 3.10, before Judas, Judas had left, Jesus had said, to them, said that you are clean, but not all of you. Judas was now gone, but the remaining disciples were clean because they believed Jesus had, what Jesus had proclaimed about himself, including that he was clean from the father and that those who believed in him would not come into condemnation but were passed from death into eternal life they had placed their faith in jesus resulting in justification from their sins and they would eventually go to the father through jesus the qualifications for being able to de- abide in christ is being cleansed by him first there is no condemnation to those in christ jesus says romans 8:1 because they are washed sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith in him, they stand clean before the Lord because their sins are forgiven. And the Holy Spirit has washed and regenerated them into new creatures. And they demonstrate the reality of this faith in Jesus and love by keeping his commandments. Next, we see the blessing in abiding in Jesus. See this in verses 4 through 5, 4 and 5. Those that are clean are able to abide in Christ. So as would follow, experience his blessings. It says, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you, me- can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The idea of abiding with Jesus is an amazing concept. It means to live, and dwell, and remain, and continue. And what a wonderful thought is living with Christ and having him living in you. And this is illustrated in the vine analogy presented here. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. Jesus, <clears throat> as a branch, cannot live, just as a branch, cannot live and bear fruit except it draws life from the vine. So, we cannot live and bear fruit unless we draw our life from Jesus. And Jesus emphasizes this point, saying, Apart from me, the vine, you can do nothing. Now, the context of the reference of doing nothing here is associated with producing the fruit mentioned in verse 5. However, the statement itself is actually a truth for all things no one can accomplish anything from Jesus Christ. All that you have and everything you accomplish in life is only by his goodness and mercy to you. Colossians 1.17 declares that Jesus Christ is before all things and in, in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 adds that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. If Christ just let go for a moment, everything would just fall apart. You exist because he created you and you continue to live only because he graciously allows you to do so. Those who think they can accomplish something apart from, God's, apart from God are foolish. Whatever wealth you may gather for yourself by whatever means you use does not really belong to you. It actually belongs to God who created it. Whatever you think you own will only be under your control for a few short years. And after your life is gone, you'll have no control over it. You are actually only a steward of it, and you will give an account of it to God in judgment. Fame and power are also fleeting and granted to those whom God chooses. Nebuchadnezzar had both of these as the king of Babylon, but God struck him because of his pride, and he became like an animal and lived in the fields. Nebuchadnezzar did not get his reason back for this until he was humbled and recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Isaiah 40, 17 declares God's view of mankind's power. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So if you have some position of power or fame, it's only because God has let you have it. The problem with too many people in positions of authority is they forget this truth and they forget that they will have to give or they don't know that they will have to give an account to God. Jesus' statement that apart from me you can do nothing is a true statement in all respects. But the context here is being able to bear fruit apart from Christ. So what is this fruit? Isaiah 5-7, a verse mentioned earlier, describes the fruit of God sought from Israel. It says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The fruit of God was looking for justice and righteousness, it is the spiritual fruit of character and of holy living. Some try to make this passage about outward success, but that's not the context. This would be the fruit of the Spirit listed out in Galatians five twenty-two through 24, which states, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's the fruit that's talked about throughout the scriptures. And John the Baptist challenged the Pharisees and the Sadducees to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And Jesus said in Matthew seven seventeen 17 through 19, that true and false teachers would be distinguished from each other by their fruit. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.11, that believers are to be filled with the, the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And in Colossians 1.10, that we are to be bearing fruit and every good work. So as we live <clears throat> in close relationship to Christ, there's a change in our character as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds and become conformed into the image of Christ, which would include our actions and attitudes. Notice that in verse 5, it's not just bearing fruit, but it's bearing much fruit. So not only can the qualities listed in Galatians be developed but they can also be developed developed into a greater capacity. We can be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more good, more faithful, more gentle, and more self-controlled than we are currently. We can have the fruit, and then we can have much fruit. This is the result of living in Jesus Christ. And sadly, I think there's too many people that claim to be Christians that try to live apart from dwelling in Christ. They are no different from those in the world who seek their purpose in life from things such as wealth and fame, power, comfort, or pleasure. The lack of spiritual fruit in their lives reveals their true relationship with Christ. It's not enough to know something about Jesus or even to view him as a good teacher in any way unless you are both clean because of being regenerated and washed by the Holy Spirit. And abiding in him, you will not experience his blessing or fruit in your life. And Jesus warns those, warns of those who are not in verse 6. In verse 6, there's a warning for not abiding. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire. And they are burned. And that may seem severe, but understand that true Christianity is about a right relationship with the creator. It's not a set of religious rituals that must be performed. It's not a list of approved and disapproved behaviors. It's not a moral code. It's not even a doctrinal statement. True Christianity has all those things, but all of them are in keeping with a right relationship with God. As Romans 14, 17 puts it, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Our prescribed ordinances Baptism and communion are about the identification with Christ and proclamation of both his death on our behalf and our hope in his return. Our moral code and conduct are based in our love for God and prodded by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And our doctrinal statement is a declaration of God's revelation of himself to us. Our ordinances, moral codes, practices, and doctrine are simply the expressions of our personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A person that does not abide in Christ may also have religious rituals, a moral code, practices, and doctrine that may appear to be biblical in some sense, but all those things are without value if you do not abide in Christ. Those that don't abide in Christ are worthless to his cause and in reality probably just a hindrance. They will therefore be treated like the cut off branches from pruning. They are gathered up, discarded, or as stated in our text cast into the fire. And I believe the allusion to the final judgment of these sinners is obvious here. Jesus speaks here on God's judgment, not on sinners generally, but on professing believers who do not possess his saving life and bear good fruit. Those who do not live in a right relationship with Christ here have no basis for such a relationship in eternity, and so it should be expected they will be cast away from him. Their sin condemns them, and apart from Christ, there is no forgiveness for that sin. Their own deeds will condemn them, for even their attempts at righteous deeds. Proclamations of self-righteousness is self-deception, for there are none that are righteous or do good. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, is the only way to the Father. Those that do not abide in Christ will lack the fruit of righteousness because they do not draw from the source of righteousness to produce such fruit. God graciously gives them life's energy, but they produce something else. The fruit of righteousness is not always outwardly obvious. People can appear pretty good by the standards of whatever society they are in and still be very ungodly. Some examples be immorality, is flagrant in fortification, adultery, and prostitution, but it's just as real in the secret peaks of pornography on the internet. God, I mean, greed is manifest in robbery and theft. It also exists in a hard heart without compassion to help the needs of others. Being drunk or high in public is obvious, but many keep keep it secret in the privacy of their own home. A brazenly obnoxious person demonstrates their evil heart outwardly, but just as evil as the sweet flattery used to conceal the snare being set to harm you. Prejudice and racism are often self-evident, but both also conceal themselves in the political correctness of what is euphemistically called social justice, but which is biblically unjust because it gives excuses for jealousy, envy, malice, bitterness, and unforgiveness. Idolatry, idolatry exhibits itself in the worship of false gods, but it also exists in the heart of a person who faithfully attends church, whose motivation is something other than worshiping the living God. There is nothing that God doesn't see, and you can't fake your way into the kingdom. The Apostle John makes this issue of abiding in Jesus very clear in 1 John. For example, we see 1 John 2, 6. It says, Whoever he abides in, whoever says he abides in him. Ought to walk in the same way as he walked. First John two twenty four. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And three six through ten says no one abides in him No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In First John three twenty four says, "Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him." And by this we know, he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And four fifteen and sixteen says, "Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God." So we have come to know and believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So to summarize, those who abide in Christ are his disciples. They know Jesus and seek to be like him by following his commandments and abstaining from evil. Jesus also describes the benefits in abiding in him. He starts that with verse 7 with answered prayer. and says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Abiding in Christ results in a confident prayer life. And Jesus had already comment, commented on the confidence those who believe in him can have in prayer back in John 14, 13 and 14. In these verses, Jesus elaborates further on that confidence. This is a conditional promise based in the relationship a person has with Jesus. Those that abide in Christ with his word abiding in them can be confident in receiving positive answers to their prayers the reason is simply that such a person desires the the will of christ over his own they are meeting the conditions of first john five fourteen, and it says and this is the confidence which we have before him that we ask according anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask we know that he that we have the requests which we have asked from him. They are heeding the warning of James 4, 2, and 3, and it says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Prayer is not about getting God to do what we want. That's asking with wrong motives. Prayer is about God changing us so that we desire what he wants. Proper prayer changes us. And then we see the hand of God working in amazing ways. It is this type of prayer that we see in verse 8 that brings glory to God. The much fruit proves that we are disciples of Christ. Verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This much fruit proves that we are disciples of Jesus. The same fruit that grants us assurance of salvation also brings glory to the Father. This indicates that if we are not abiding and bearing the fruit of changed lives, then we are denying God's glory. It is easy for us to speak of praising God and to sing hallelujahs, but the way God especially desires to be glorified in us is by our transformed lives. When we abide in Christ, we're able to abide in his love as well another benefit and we see this in verses 9 and 10. Jesus explains the nature of his love for them in verse 9 and 10 while calling upon them to continue their love for him as it says as the Father has loved me so I have loved you abide in my love if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The nature of Jesus's love for us is the same as the father's love for the son and what an incredible statement the love that exists between the members of the god has it godhead is extended to us that's the reason that jesus was willing to lay down his life and to sacrifice for our sins it was out of his love paul states this directly in ephesians 2 4 and 5 god being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, Jesus once again states obedience to his commandments demonstrates your relationship with him. Here he emphasizes that if you that you that you will abide in his love just as his obedience to the Father demonstrated that he abides in the Father's love. Those claiming to love Jesus yet refusing to obey him only prove that they are liars. Those that do not love Jesus demonstrate that love by keeping his commandments. And obeying Jesus demonstrates abiding in him and his love. Abiding does not earn either your salvation or God's love, it only demonstrates the reality of your relationship with him. And that you have responded to his love, that you have loved him and abide in his love. And lastly, On these benefits it says we can also have abundant joy Jesus states this reason for his teaching in verse 11 says these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full this is why Jesus has said all these things to his disciples he wants them to be comforted in the days ahead though he will be crucified and no longer with him they can still trust in him and his many promises they can have peace, the world does not know or understand, and they can have joy in the midst of their sorrow. Why? Because they abide in him. He will continue to abide in them. He will not be present with them physically as he had before, but he will remain with them spiritually and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they will turn. they, in turn, will be able to bear much fruit in living godly lives that glorify the Lord. And what greater joy can there be than to know that not only does God love you, that He is using you for the very purpose of which He created you? And one final thing when Jesus says abide in Him, He's not asking nor is He giving advice, it's a command. And in obeying Him, we can have confidence in His security and continually rest in the fullness of Christ's provision relishing his love, offering our obedience in return, and the abounding in the perfect divine joy that he has eternally possessed and that he delights to give us if we abide in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the clarity of your word. You are the vine, and we are the branches. I pray that through the connection, um, through that connection, we can be fruitful and thrive, and because of that connection, we can have everything we need and know, and we can rest in you. All truth, all wisdom, all knowledge, all understanding, all peace, all joy and call comfort. Our eternal hope is in you, and I ask that this truth lives in us in a fuller and deeper way. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.